So a few years back, uh, my dad, who's here this morning, hi dad, was actually living at the time, he's, he's now retired, but at the time he was living in Wisconsin, working a job there, and I went and I got to go visit him. And so we had this great idea that we would go canoeing in the St. Croix River. We're like, man, this is going to be a ton of fun. And so my dad worked with a guy who had all the equipment, and we met at his house. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll drive you down there in my truck with the canoe, and I'll get you guys loaded. And then you just call me when you're done. I'll come back and pick you up. And so we get to the, his house first, and his wife, this guy's wife, was like, hey, um, did you tell them about the storm warning? And he's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. And we're like, wait, wait, what was that? Can you rewind a second? And he's like, oh, it's, it's fine. Like, there, you know, there's these warnings all the time, but they don't always... Nothing always hits, you know, it's, it looks clear out there, you're going to be fine. We, like, pulled it up on, like, the weather report and everything on his computer before we left to look at it. And we're like, I oh, know, that looks pretty dangerous. And he's like, no, 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 no. you're going to be okay, trust me. And so we get in his truck and load everything up, and we start heading over there. And we get out, and there's this loud siren going off. And we're like, what is that? He's like, oh, it's fine, don't worry. Like, you keep saying that, but I'm not believing you. Like, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's a siren. Uh, it's a warning for a thunderstorm. And we're like, okay. So they kind of sound that alarm and that warning for a reason, right? We probably shouldn't get into this water. And he's like, no, no, no you're going to be okay. Trust me. Look, skies are clear. And we're like, all right, you've done this before. We've never done this. We're some city boys, so we're going to trust you. So... We get down there, and he takes off, and we get into the canoe, and we're going, and it starts off pretty good, and like that, the skies turn black, and it just starts pouring down like the hardest rain I've ever been in in my life, and we're trying so hard. We're in the middle of the St. Croix at this point. We're trying so hard to get to this edge of the river, to the bank, so that we can get out, but the canoe is just filling up with water super, super fast. And wind is pushing us, and it's, it's pretty crazy. And we've never done this before. So we're like, I, my arms are getting tired. <laughs> I don't know what to do. We finally get close enough to where we can get out and, like, stand a little bit. And we start dragging this canoe full of water up to the bank. And we had to get out. We sat there trying to text this guy through the, the plastic baggies that our phones were in. Because if we couldn't take them out, they were going to get drenched sitting under a tree. I don't remember, were we able to flip the canoe over and put it over us? So it wouldn't, yeah, get taken from us. So yeah, and we just, we hung out there for like, I don't know, felt like forever, maybe half an hour, waiting for this guy to come back and pick us up and waiting for the storm to subside. And we we're like, let's promise to never do this again, right? <laughs> so I haven't been canoeing since, seriously. Uh, but, that's just kind of like what life is like sometimes, isn't it? Where you, you feel like you're going along, everything's fine, and all of a sudden something hits, like a storm hits. And really the reality is like if you take that river metaphor, and you've probably heard something like this before, that there's a current that we're all in, and the world and society, culture is kind of taking us along this current. And if we're not careful, we can be swept away, but especially when a storm hits, I think about some of the beliefs that we hold on to that we try to anchor ourselves with. And, and we have this belief, um, like, 
God helps those who help themselves. Like, wait, wait hold on, that's not, that's not one of them, right? That's not in there. We, we, we take these little bits and pieces and nuggets and sometimes they get completely twisted and messed up because they're not in context. And it's like throwing a little pebble into the stream, into the St. Croix River, and it's getting just swept away. What we need is to be actually transplanted into another current, another stream that's taking us in the right direction. Uh, because when, when you just throw that little bit and piece of what you believe and what you're trying to hold on to into this current, it's got really no, no anchor. It can just be taken and swept right along. But especially when a storm hits, when something goes wrong in life, man, all the more so, right? You're just swept up in it. And we live in an age and in a culture that has a very, very strong current that's wanting to take us all in a certain direction, and we get swept up in it at times. All of us do. And if we don't think we do, we're fooling ourselves. And the book of Daniel, if you remember last week we said that the book of Daniel is really painting a picture to show us how the people of God, God's people living for his kingdom, can live faithfully in the current of God's story, even in the midst of their culture, even in the midst of a human kingdom that's trying to rule and reign over them. That's what this book is about. A lot of people uh, look at the book of Daniel and, and we think about end times prophecies and timelines and things like that, and there's a little bit of that in there, but the point of Daniel being written was to show God's people how to live faithfully, swimming upstream in the current of your culture. And I think what we'll see is that the world we live in today is very similar in a lot of ways to the Babylon that Daniel and his friends lived in at that time. And so just to get kind of an understanding too of how the book of Daniel works, and I always tell myself I'm never gonna do this again because technology does not like me here, uh, but here we are, so we're gonna try it. So this is an overview of the book of Daniel you could find on thebibleproject.com that they put together and it's kind of sloppy there, I know, but um, I don't think it's going to let me zoom in, is it? Nope, just on my iPad, okay. So it's kind of a little bit sloppy there, but what, what I want you to see is, first and foremost, that we have 12 books in the book of Daniel. Is this working? You see that? Never again. It's telling me the presentation has ended up there. All right. Scratch that. I don't have a laser pointer. No, I'm going to point with my finger. So <laughs> we have 12 books in the book of Daniel. Uh, and if you see at the bottom there how it's broken up, book one is written in Hebrew. And then books two through seven are written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. Books eight through 12 written in Hebrew again which is really interesting, like why would that happen? Well, remember, they were taken into captivity, they were transplanted from their home, put into the king's palace in Babylon, and they were being taught the language, the literature, the stories, the astronomy and astrology, and the gods, and the culture of Babylon. And so we get this intro to the book of Daniel in chapter one, but now all of a sudden, it switches over, and you'll hear it, there's actually a point in, Chapter 2, as we read it, where you'll, you'll, I'll notice, I'll point out to you when that switch happens, verse 7, I believe, 
where all of a sudden everything's starting to be written in Aramaic, and this is what uh, now these people have been immersed in, Daniel and everybody. But also, some of the writings in the book of Daniel aren't from Daniel. In fact, chapter 4, I believe, is written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So that's a really interesting thing. And then what we see in in chapters 2 through 7, chapter 1 kind of being that intro, 2 through 7, we see it's it's put in a way where it's... um, this pattern to help us see the main theme of what's going on. And so the way the Bible Project laid this out, you have the bottom two, chapters four and chapter five, kind of align with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And then Belshazzar, who's another king we're going to see meet later on in, in the book of Daniel, his pride and how that gets them both in trouble. Right? Chapters three and six align where Israelites who are being faithful to their God and not falling into the culture of Babylon get in trouble for not going after the king's pride. And so you get chapter 3 where three guys are thrown in the furnace and chapter 6 where Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. Right? Those are the little children's stories that we get from the book of Daniel. So either you think that the book of Daniel is about these little children's stories and it's kind of like this cute fluffy lion that Daniel's hanging out with. Or you think it's about end times prophecy and it's neither of those things. Chapters 2 and 7 correlate. You got the king's dream, King Nebuchadnezzar's, which we're going to look at this morning. And chapter 7, Daniel's dream. And so it's like they kind of like put those, if if you were to spread them out, 2 and 7 on those ends go together. And then 3 and 6 on the insides go together. right? And then 4 and 5 in the very middle, those go together. And so that was a form of, of liturgy and pattern work that ancient Near Eastern times would use uh, to show this is kind of the main thing, that the kingdoms of Babylon and the kingdoms of man are full of pride. And when you stand against that in order to stand with the true king of all creation, the one true God, there will be trouble that comes. And yet God will provide for you in the midst of it. And that God... Actually, he's not a distant God in the midst of your trouble. He comes and he speaks and he even gives us insight and revelation into how to live in his kingdom. Make sense? And then all of a sudden we get switched back in chapter 8 to Hebrew again because the story part of Daniel has now ended. We, we hear all these stories of things taking place in Daniel and then what happens, chapters 8 through 12, is a, a bunch of dreams that Daniel had during all those years. And he wrote them all down for us, and he starts to interpret them, but he doesn't really know how to. And we get the task of doing that. It's tons of fun. So that's kind of a, the overview of the book of Daniel. This morning, we're looking at chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, and he doesn't understand it, and it gets him really, really angry. Uh, but Daniel comes in, and with the wisdom of God, is able to give some insight and. Because of that, God actually uses giving this scary nightmare dream to King Nebuchadnezzar as a way to inform all of God's people how to live in the midst of Babylon. Make sense? So for us, how do we live in the midst of America 2019? Hopefully we'll get a little bit of insight from that through this. So Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read right now through verse 18, and we'll pause for a second. And this is what's written, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is when it switches over, all the way through the end of chapter 7. So they said to him in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word, is, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Let's stop there for a second. So King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. We don't even know what it is yet. But it has shaken him to his core. He can't sleep. He's, he's fearful. And out of fear and, and maybe anger, he's doing something very, very rash, isn't he? Last week we saw some of the wisdom of King Nebuchadnezzar. You don't get to become king that easily without having a little bit of wisdom, right? And his wisdom of not just going in and laying waste to these other kingdoms that he's taking over, but actually bringing them in and assimilating them so that they would become part of Babylon with him. That's, that's wisdom, and yet now we're seeing the wisdom of the greatest king on the face of the earth at this time is not much wisdom at all, is it? But we're going to see from another person, a, a young boy, in fact, many theologians believe, many historians believe Daniel and his friends were probably around 15 years old at this time that his wisdom comes because it's coming from God and it makes Nebuchadnezzar look foolish. And so he has this bad dream and he wakes up and he's like, all right, I need 
I need my best wise men, magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans to come in and explain this to me. Chaldeans, by the way, last week we said they were pretty much the same as Babylonians. They were this, uh, they were this like top tier class in the society of Babylon who ran Babylon. And so these were like the, the uh, I don't know what, the Illuminati of Babylon in a sense, right? Like they were in charge. The upper echelon, thank you, of, of Babylon. And so he calls all them in and he's like, all right, I had this crazy dream. Tell me what's going on. And they're like, sure. What was your dream? And we'll tell you what it meant. And he's like, no. You have to tell me what my dream was first. Have you guys ever had a moment, maybe when you were kids, with a sibling or somebody, where they're like, well, if you don't know, then I'm not telling you. I'm like, that's exactly why I need you to tell me, because I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. If you don't know, I'm going to tell you. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Well, you don't know what my dream was, I'm going to tell you. What was it? You know? And they're like, uh, dude, we can't do this. Like, nobody can do this. And he's like, well, you're going to do it or you're going to die. He says he's going to tear their limbs from their body. He's going to destroy their households. Because you can't tell me what my dream was. That's pretty rash, right? It's pretty crazy. Something about this dream has completely shaken him to his core where he's not thinking straight because these are the people he relies on in his kingdom. And so, like, we can't do that. In fact, nobody on earth can do that. What you're asking of us, no other king has ever asked this of anyone because it's insane and it's impossible. No one can do it. We can't do it. Only the gods maybe can do it. And then they say this interesting thing, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Maybe the gods could do it, but they're not here with us right now. They're not close to us right now. They don't come down and fraternize with us mortals. So they're not going to be any help. Some gods, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar gets so angry, violently angry, he decides to kill all of them. Now, it started off in verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember from last week, how many years were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and their friends supposed to be going through their Babylonian training before they came into the king's service. Three years, right? All right, so at this point, they're all still going through their three-year training. So that's why Daniel's not around at this part of the story. He's, he's going through his schooling right now. And so Nebuchadnezzar has called in all the, the people who are actually serving him at this point, and they can't do it and then he goes, all right, fine. All of you are going to be laid to waste. And he includes those who are in training to be his wise men, right? Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, their slave names, they are lumped into this category because they were brought in to be trained in the ways of Babylon so that they can serve the king as counselors. It's kind of crazy. And Daniel has already shown some wisdom when, remember, they came with the king's food, and he says, no, uh, test us for 10 days. See if we do any better than those who are eating the king's food. We're just going to eat vegetables and drink water, which makes literally no sense, and yet it worked. And so there's probably some reports going back like, yeah, these guys are going to be some of your future wise men. They, they got something going on here, right? There's some understanding here. 
At the end of chapter one, it told us that they were found 10 times better than all the other wise men. So they're lumped in this category even though they didn't get the opportunity to come and tell the dream to the king yet themselves. It's kind of like when I was playing high school football and I was second string linebacker and that I didn't get to play a whole lot of plays. And then when our team would mess up on the field, our coach would be like, everyone's got 500 up-downs at practice tomorrow. And I'm like, but that wasn't me. I wasn't out there. And he's like, you're part of the team, aren't you? Besides, you think you can do better than first string? Like, everyone gets punished, right? And that's kind of what's happening with Daniel and his friends right now. Like, our first string guys couldn't do it. You're all in trouble. And so Daniel hears about what's going on. And it says with prudence and discretion. Like he just found out he's going to be murdered for something he didn't do. And with prudence and discretion, he responds. Man, talk about like the wisdom and the peace of God being upon you even in the midst of suffering. And so he, he just responds calmly, says, okay, hold on. Why is this such an urgent decree from the king? And so the guy tells him everything. He's like, look, I don't want to do it, but the king said I got to tear your limbs apart, so we're going to do it. This is what happened. And Daniel, here's this thing that no human being could do as, like I said, probably a 15-year-old boy. And he marches over to the king's palace, and he's like, hey, Can I make an appointment with the king? Why? What's your business? I'm going to tell him what his dream was and show him the interpretation. Okay, I'll pencil you in. Sure. He goes and does this right away before knowing what the dream is. He's that confident. He's that sure that God's going to somehow come through for him, that God's going to give him the answer. I mean, also, like, what else do you got to lose, right? You're about to have your body torn apart limb from limb. But that kind of boldness to go straight up to the king's palace and be like, all right, set the appointment. I've got this. Do we live with that kind of faith, with that kind of confidence? The confidence wasn't in himself, and we're going to see that in a second. And so let's continue reading. Verse 19. And so, by the way, Daniel does this, and then he, what does he do right after that? He straight away goes to the house where he's living and he tells his three friends who also trust the Lord, hey, let's start praying. He says, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that we won't be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Let's let's go to God with this. He's got to come through. He's got to show us what's going on here. Otherwise, we're toast too. Verse 19, so they're praying. Then... The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God came through. And Daniel responds, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. 
Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember that's his Babylonian slave name given to him, which means protect the life of the king by the power of Bel, their Babylonian goddess. And he says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, it starts off the same way as his wise men, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And I'm sure right then, it's not looking good for Daniel. King's probably getting furious, rage is building up inside. But, Daniel goes on, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He says, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. All right, so he's gonna about to go through what his dream means. Before we move on, pause again real quick. Daniel goes and he prays. He trusts God's gonna answer. And God comes through. Daniel has now at night in his own dream seen a vision of what the king's dream was. Like, could you imagine being in that spot and going like, all right, the most powerful person on earth wants me to tell, like, read their mind. Wants me to tell them what their dream was the other night. And then you go to bed, and you have a dream, and you wake up, and you're like, that's it. And you go in there, and, like, could you imagine starting to feel like, wait a second. What if that's not the right dream? What if that was just my dream? What if, like, I, I go and I announce this whole thing, I describe this crazy dream, and then the king's like, that wasn't my dream. What are you talking about? No, I had this dream that, like, this clown kept laughing at me, and then it wiped off its makeup, and it was my mom. I don't know, like, <laughs> some crazy dream, right? That was, like, the weirdest thing I could think of on the spot. <laughs> I probably need to go see somebody about that. I don't know. So... You know, like, there's this probably doubt and fear starting to come in, right? Have you ever felt so sure about something that God has promised and said, and then, like, when you get right down to it, to live it out, to act on it? I don't know. Maybe God didn't say that, right? I don't, yeah, I know, I know it says that in, in Scripture, but what if, what if it doesn't happen for me, right? Like, and yet Daniel keeps going with boldness, with confidence. The other thing that is so amazing about this story, that's why I love that we're just reading the chapter, the whole thing, because it's a great story. Daniel doesn't just save himself and his friends. God saves Daniel and his friends, and then God uses that to also bring salvation to all the other enchanters and magicians and Chaldeans and wise men and astrologers, the ones that don't worship him, the ones that are competition with Daniel and his friends, right? Like they're going through school to take in that spot as well. So at the, at the best, they're competition. At the worst, they're enemies, which we'll see later in the book of Daniel, that they're actually the ones that go and rat out Daniel and his friends for not bowing down to the idols that the king set up. 
And Daniel says, save them. Don't bring any harm to them. God's salvation, God's rescuing comes to a specific people that he chooses first, but not to stay there for the sake of it going out to the rest of humanity. That little line right there is a picture of the whole story of the gospel. God setting apart a people, Israel, so that all the other nations would be blessed and know him as well. So that the Babylons and the Romes and the Egypts would actually come to salvation and rescuing from this same God. So Daniel starts to tell him what the dream is, right? To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. Remember, end of chapter one, Daniel and his friends are 10 times wiser than all the other wise men. And Daniel goes, no, 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 I'm not taking credit for that. This is not because of any wisdom in me, he says. He says, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings. Have we ever heard a phrase like that before? This is to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. Who's given it to him? The God of heaven. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. What does that remind us of somewhere else in this story? Not this story, the whole story of God, the whole story of the Bible. Having rule and dominion, power and might glory over all, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, all of creation. Has God ever given that type of rule and authority to someone else before? Very beginning of the story, right? At the very beginning of creation, that God gives to the first man and the first woman authority and dominion and power over all of the rest of creation. God gave them that. And he lets them rule as his representatives in his place, right? This has always been the plan of God to invite us into that story that we would actually be the image of God. I'm trying to use language that we're hearing in this story on purpose. We're, we we got to connect these dots, right? 
That's what we're called. Humanity is called at the very beginning, Genesis 1. In the image of God, humanity was made to rule over creation as representatives of God, to show the rest of creation what God's like because we're in his image. And Nebuchadnezzar's seeing in his dream this image that has dominion and rule and authority. And so that, that same word image is also used for statue. And it has this authority all over all the rest of creation. And so Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're that. You are the head of gold on this statue, on this image. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And then yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will then set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. No, it shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. And then Daniel did a mic drop. Like, imagine being the king right there going like, whoa, that's exactly what I saw. I can't believe what you just told me. And so to illustrate a little bit better what he saw, we got an image here of this statue, this image Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, with the head of it being gold. And Daniel tells him straight up, this represents you, your kingdom of Babylon. Like, the greatest kingdom on earth. You're ruling over all people. But it's going to come to an end. There's going to be another kingdom that rises after you. And there's been lots of debate as to what these uh, four or five kingdoms are representing. But most likely, most likely what we see, especially as we look just at history itself, and how that plays out, and really as we continue to go through the book of Daniel, we'll see it unfold, who comes next is the Persian Empire. And we're going to see that. Daniel's going to interact with the new king who actually starts bringing in the Medo-Persian Empire as well. So the Persian Empire comes in as the silver, torso, and arms of the body, the, the kingdom that rules after Babylon. And then there's another kingdom that comes to rule after that, Greece. And that's the bronze represented by the midwaist there. And then Rome, strong as iron. Rome, one of the strongest empires throughout history, came in and just crushed other nations and laid waste to them. What's, what I think is so true about this layout of here, this timeline, is that what we see throughout history, what's real is that those kingdoms in those days, that when they ruled, they really were an empire that ruled over pretty much all of the earth. Like if you were another kingdom that was not part of their kingdom, you cowered before them, right? 
You, you did what they said. We, since the Roman Empire, we have not had another kingdom like that on earth. It's become divided by all these different nations, right? And so after this Roman Empire starts to become divided, which we see around 476 AD, the Roman Empire starts kind of collapsing. If you look at historical accounts, and there's lots of different debate about what was the main cause of it, but every historical account you look at, every single one of them has to make note of the rise of Christianity being a part of the ultimate fall of Rome. It's interesting, right? And in fact, when Constantine, Roman leader, starts saying, okay, we're actually making Christianity now like the main religion of our people and of our kingdom, it gets really divided. Because now what you have are the people who are being swept under the Roman Empire and their version of Christianity and what the church looks like. And then you have those who are completely adamantly against that. And then you have this third kind of people who are going like, no, no, we follow the one true God and we follow Jesus, but it doesn't actually look like the way Constantine's setting up. And it's not about getting power over people. In fact, God's people historically and all throughout the Bible have always been an oppressed people who have suffered under those in power, but have done it faithfully. And so there's division that starts to happen. And even what we see today is we still have remnants of Rome in our culture today, don't we? Like if you think about it, every scientific term for anything, whether it's a plant or an animal, uses a Latin name, right? Don't ask me how I know this, but the duck is histrionicus histrionicus. It's Latin. Where does that come from? It comes from the Roman Empire, right? So even our calendars, the fact that we still say A.D. and B.C., like a lot of stuff comes from Roman culture. It's still intermixed into who we are today, but it's divided by so many different nations and kingdoms. When Usually what happens when God talks about his kingdom, and especially when Jesus talks about the kingdom throughout the Gospels, he uses imagery to show us that, hey, it's happened, but it's not yet happened, right? Like he says things like the kingdom of God is like a seed planted in the ground. So it's there, but it hasn't yet fully grown to its full fruition, right? And that's usually what a lot of prophecies throughout scripture are like too. It's like this is going to happen, it is happening, hasn't yet happened, will happen one day kind of thing. So like, look, this has already happened, we have this kingdom of Babylon ruling over everybody. And then we're going to see these other kingdoms. And eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be this divided kingdom. And there's going to be a rock that hits it. And it's going to blow all those other kingdoms away. And then only one kingdom will remain. And what we see is that that hit, that blow from the stone has already come. It has already crushed the divided kingdom. The, the part mixed with iron and clay. And yet it hasn't fully toppled over the image yet, right? And that image hasn't been swept away like chaff in the wind just yet. And that stone, it's there, but it hasn't grown into that giant, huge mountain just yet, right? And so what we see in this is Daniel and God's people being told, listen, there is a better kingdom coming. There's a better kingdom coming for you. It's not Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It's not 
the Persian Medes. It's not Greece. It's not Rome. It's not the United Nations. It's not America. It's not your preferred political party. All of those will tumble and crumble and be swept away like they were never even there. But there is a kingdom coming that will stand firm and strong and last forever. And it will be a good kingdom. Daniel's saying this to Nebuchadnezzar, but really I believe God gave this dream also for his own people so that they would have hope in the midst of this culture. This is what Psalm... 18 says, verse 1 and 2, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and and I am saved from my enemies. God is the rock that comes to destroy those other kingdoms. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears this. His kingdom's not gonna last forever and this is how he responds. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings or another interpretation, king of kings, right? Daniel said it to Nebuchadnezzar but it was like a lowercase, you're the king of kings here on earth. But now even he himself is saying, no, 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 truly your God is the king, capital K, over all kings. And a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Either because of his pride and he's like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the golden head of that statue. Like either it was that that made him so pleased with that interpretation of the dream or it was simply because he could not deny the fact that Daniel had just done what nobody else could do and Daniel gave credit to his God. Maybe a little bit of both, right? Because the truth is there's, there's a little bit of both in us. We are acknowledging who God is and yet we're still filled with pride and trying to fight for that seat and that throne over the kingdom. And we're going to see as we turn the page next week too that Nebuchadnezzar has to keep struggling and fighting with his pride. But either way, either way in that moment, he goes, yeah, this is true. I can't deny it. Can't deny it. And this hope becomes the hope that God's people hold on to for generations to come. Problem is when, when we misinterpret what that rock is, who that stone is, is when problems start happening. In second century, the second century Christians, many of them started to read Daniel 2. Josephus, an early church historian, points this out. And they read that and it inspired them to be the rock that goes and crushes all the kingdoms. And so it led these revolts against Rome. Problem is the stone had already come. Jesus says that he is the cornerstone, the, the stone that the builders rejected And yet he's now become the cornerstone that everything gets built upon. The stone that came small and meek in that dream that ends up becoming this huge mountain filling all the earth. Jesus didn't come in a way to wage war against the Roman Empire. He didn't come to crush all those kingdoms with force and might. 
He, he came as a little stone first, right? He, he came with meekness and humility. He was born as a little infant into this world. He became the one who was exiled like the Israelites are in the story we read today. And he lived and he suffered through that as a, a poor Israelite with no home in a country and in a nation ruled by an oppressive nation. And he lived through that faithfully, showing, showing the rest of the world, this is what you are called to do. This is how you reflect living in the true kingdom, even when there are other human kingdoms temporarily in place. Because one day those kingdoms will fall away. And this kingdom that I'm building here now will last forever. And so Jesus comes to crush those kingdoms, yes. But first he came to be crushed by them. Jesus came first to be crushed by Rome. Hung up on a cross, nails driven through his hands on that splintery wood, thorns digging into his skull, stripped naked, embarrassed and humiliated, whipped, beaten, spear driven into his side, murdered by Rome. So that he could rise again, so that the stone covering the entrance of his tomb could be rolled away, he could rise again, and he could take his rightful spot on the throne as king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods, ruler over all creation. And he says, this is the hope that you have. You're still sitting here and dwelling here in the midst of human kingdoms ruling, right? And let's be honest, they're not doing a very good job. But one day, the true king will return. And all these other kingdoms will be swept away like chaff that gets blown away in the wind and you never see it again. And the kingdom of God will reign forever. That kingdom came with Jesus. He was already given a crown. It was a crown of thorns. He was already given a purple robe. And there was even a placard announcing to the whole world who he was, the king of kings, right? It was done in mockery then, but it will be done with glory and majesty and truth when he returns. And so may we be a people who hold out for that, who long for that, and who point others toward that. Because just like Daniel's insight and wisdom from God brought salvation to those who didn't follow him, we get to be that today. Living in the midst of a human kingdom, we get to take the salvation and the wisdom God has given us of this story. And we get to bring hope and joy and reconciliation to the world around us.